0: All right, learning to let God lead. And this is once again centered on the life of Paul. And there is, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to read the whole chapter uh, that we're dealing with here today and, and uh, getting into the 22nd chapter of, of, of Acts. But I, I, I want to kind of summarize for you what's going on in Paul's life and, and set, set the, uh, 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 the scene for you so we can then extract the important thoughts from that. First of all, we want to go to that part where Paul is testifying before this riotous crowd. The crowd is riotous. We left this off last week. The, the Jews have become riotous because they believe Paul has allowed a Gentile to go into the inner courts of the temple. So things are really getting out of hand. And that was about as as much of an insult to the Jews as almost anything you could possibly think that they would happen. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned last week, there there were signs warning transgressors, trespassers. It was under the penalty of death for a Gentile to go in to the inner court. Very protected. So the mob under this accusation had seized Paul and they were in the process of beating him, how, how long can a mob beat a man and not kill him? So you have to understand, uh, he was either severely severely beaten or they had come to this rescue just before they killed him, but he was not in good shape having been beaten by the mob. So as he is talking, giving speeches, you have to understand he's not in good shape doing this bruises and bleeding and obviously been beaten silly by a mob. He is then giving testimony and speaking to these people. you got to keep that in mind, what kind of condition he was in. The Roman guards did not really understand everything that was happening because of this massive riot. The first thing they thought of is recently there had been this this Egyptian troublemaker who came into town and tried to start a little rebellion and he led uh, some several thousand people out into the desert. And they thought this, this Egyptian rabble rouser is back at it again. So they looked at Paul. They thought this must be the man. That was what they had in mind as they took Paul, put him in chains and they said we're going to move this man into the barracks. They didn't know who Paul was. They didn't know why the crowd was beating him. He must be that Egyptian troublemaker. Uh, they, their plans were take him to the barracks and there they would flog him now Paul's been flogged before uh, he was flogged and put in prison him and Silas and, and I described to you what that flogging is all about it doesn't feel good and for Paul to be under the prospect of again facing another flogging how many of you have ever been flogged before? I didn't think so how many of you like to be flogged once and then flogged again in a couple years? That's like a near-death experience, and then you're right on the verge of being flogged again. What's with this? Some people don't get flogged their entire life. I get two times. So it, 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 this, is, this is traumatic for Paul. Take him to the barracks, flog him. It was their method of torturing him in order to force a confession of the truth from him. And so they're preparing him. They, they had put him in the barracks. They were getting ready to flog him. And then Paul speaks in the Greek tongue. He's bilingual, multilingual. He speaks to the Roman guards in the Greek tongue. And he says, I am a Jewish citizen of Tarsus. Now notice, Paul doesn't tell everything about himself yet. He gets bits and pieces of information. The only information he gives at this point is, I am a Jewish citizen of Tarsus. And he says, can I speak to the people? Now the guards, before they answer his request, they're astonished that he speaks Greek. And so they said, well, this must not be the Egyptian. The Egyptian wouldn't be speaking Greek. So they got the wrong guy. And then Paul exhibits, as we study this, a brilliance as an orator. A brilliance as, a, 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 as being able to put together a, a case that can move and somewhat manipulate the crowd. He uses his gift as a skilled orator to calm the people down and then take the opportunity to give his testimony. So he takes control of the crowd by first. The crowd's in a frenzy. They haven't calmed down yet. And he uses his hands. And as long as it takes, finally they begin to settle down. He's motioning. Everybody quiet. Everybody quiet. He didn't have a microphone. He had to speak above the noise of the city. And finally as they quiet down, he begins to speak. And he speaks to them in another language, Aramaic. Now Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke. And Paul speaks in Aramaic... And the people immediately realize, wait a minute. We're intrigued by the fact that this man we were just beating up is speaking Aramaic. So the very first thing he did, the clever thing that he did... Uh, is he, he, he calmed the crowd by speaking a the language they could appreciate. Now, what, is, what does that make a difference? Because if he'd have been a Jew of the diaspora, the, the scattered Jews, there were Jews that were that were you know, centrally located in Jerusalem, then there were Jews that were scattered throughout the many different countries, those Jews that had been scattered to other countries would have lived, learned a different language and communicated in a different language. Remember the day of Pentecost? When they were uh, speaking in other tongues and all these Jews from different parts of the country came and they said what? He could hear him in our language. So they all had a different tongue. But the Aramaic that he spoke told them something. He's not a Jew of the diaspora. He's one of us. When he spoke the Aramaic they said he's one of us. We're beating up one of us. So now they were interested who is this man? And what does he have to say? It was one of the most brilliant things he did to begin to connect with his crowd. So he begins to give a testimony of his conversion. He began by dropping a couple of names that would further gain him a bit of favor with the crowd. The first name that he drops is, I was a student of Gamaliel. And when he said Gamaliel, Gamaliel was the most respected teacher In that era, and when they said a student of Gamaliel, it's like, man, that's you are. It's like having a doctor's degree. Student of Gamaliel, they have a lot of respect for anybody. They Have a lot of respect for Gamaliel and any student of his. So now he's got some of them a little bit sympathetic. They were just beating him up minutes ago. Now he speaks Aramaic, and he's a student of Gamaliel, and they want to hear what he has to say. He's turning the crowd in his favor. And then he says, "I sat at the field of Gamaliel, uh, and was trained, according to the strictness of the ancestral law." Another interesting phrase: "Ah, ancestral law. The Jews love to hear ancestral law. Another reason to really respect this man, "Taught in ancestral law. He's connecting with them with all these little Judaistic things." The crowd appreciated that. Then he tells them, I, had, I was on a mission. I wanted to kill Christians. Now they love him. What's not to like about this guy? He speaks our language, trained by the best. He hates Christians, so do we. Why are we beating him up? And he tells his testimony. He was blinded by a light at noonday. How bright does the light have to be to be brighter than noonday? And the soldiers could see the brightness, but they couldn't hear the voice, didn't know who he was talking to. So the light was pretty obvious. And after being blinded by the light, escorted to town, Paul then drops another name. He tells of a Jew named Ananias. And he says, Ananias was a devout observer of the law. Don't you think the Jews would have loved that? Anybody's going to observe the law? Yeah, he's connecting with them. Ananias, a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all Jews living in Damascus. The crowd loved it. And now Paul shares something about his meeting with Ananias. You did not read previously in the book of Acts. It was a very brief description of his meeting with Ananias then. But then he brings out another detail as he recounts this. And he said this. Then Ananias said... The God of our ancestors, notice the little Jewish flavor to this. The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and see the righteous one and hear words from his mouth. Who's saying this? The highly respected Jew Ananias. They are tuned into this guy. One of the most respected Jews in that area has heard from God. And God is speaking through Ananias. And they love all these stories about God speaking miraculously, supernaturally. They're very intrigued by this. So Paul is saying, Ananias, the highly respected Jew, heard from God. And God told him that I would be a witness. I would see the righteous one. He hadn't said Jesus yet. Because he's very carefully avoiding these triggers, these unnecessary triggers, and they don't know who the righteous one is either. They're just glad that God spoke to this this uh, highly respected Jew, and God's using this Jew to speak to, to to Paul, and Paul's been chosen by God to to hear the righteous one and to share his words. Now they're wondering, well, what are the words? Share the words with us. We want to hear this. This is evidently of God. And he said, you'll be witnesses to all the people of what you've seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? This is still Ananias talking to Paul. Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And they understand sin. And they understand forgiveness of sin. They don't understand Jesus yet. So Paul's just made a case for having been appointed by God to see the Righteous One and to be this witness of all the Righteous One. And what do the Jews think about that? They're still tracking with Him. This is great. And then Paul tells them, and and when I was at the temple praying, and they love that! He's a temple praying Jew. They're still tracking with Him. God told me in a vision to get out of Jerusalem. Because there would be certain people who would not receive my testimony. Now. Paul relates. That at that point when God. Told Paul get out of Jerusalem. Paul says. Basically let me just. Paraphrase it. I argued with God. I said God. Think about this, I used to be a persecutor, I, I am a Jew of Jews, and I, I was personally arrested by Jesus, and that I think prepares me to speak to my people. They will listen to me, I mean I, I've got such a unique life, I was specifically chosen by you, and look at my background would be a wonderful witness for you. And God says, you got it all wrong. You're trying to think of this in human terms. I'm telling you, they will not listen to you. Paul doesn't understand it. They ought to. They have every reason to listen to me. And God says, no. said, well, I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles because the Jews will not receive you. It just doesn't make sense to Paul. And you know the many times after that incident when God had told Paul to get out of town. How many times he kept trying to go to the synagogue and they wouldn't listen to him? How long does it take to learn that God knows? He had to learn the hard way. God knows. I told you they won't listen to you. By and large, he had a few converts, but it wasn't where his success was. He said, I'll I'll send you away. Go far away. Go to the Gentiles. Get out of town. This is not where your ministry is. So now, so far, Paul has used Jewish activities and Jewish language and Jewish characters and Jewish education to earn him respect to the people. He's got them right here. And then he says the wrong thing. There is a trigger word. After he has them in the palm of his hand and he says... God told me to go to the Gentiles. And the minute he says Gentiles, they are back in this rage and this uproar again. Because speaking of Gentiles, the reason they were beating him because he was supposedly taking a Gentile into the inner court and he got the whole thing riled up again. Oh, Paul, if you just hadn't said that. He designed his testimony Cleverly to unveil Jesus gradually, just easy, just unveil him as the Messiah. One would think that Jesus being the Messiah would have been the volatile point of his testimony. But it wasn't. The volatile point was the word Gentiles. That's the one that really made him have problems. So they immediately, immediately when he said Gentile, Remembered, this man is a friend of Gentiles, and he probably desecrated the temple with a Gentile. They're angry at him again. He lost all of his momentum. He was a Gentile sympathizer. They knew it, they knew it, they knew it. Now he's lost control of the crowd. And even so, Paul had skillfully weaved this narrative to bring Jesus into the focus. And the crowd was not rejecting his words at this point. Just when he says Gentile, they lost it. It was that trigger word. And they couldn't comprehend the main message. The main message was Jesus spoke to me and told me to tell you his words. That's the message. They couldn't hear the message because they heard a trigger word. You know as a pastor I can tell you this absolutely happens. I have preached sermons that the main message is this. But somewhere along the line, I said a trigger word in somebody's mind. And they couldn't get over it because I had said that trigger word. They couldn't hear what I was preaching because they had said something that reminded them of something that made them mad at me. I don't know how many times... I've had people come and try to recap my sermon for me, and they heard trigger word, and they got off. It's kind of like the old saying, they, they were after coons, and they got off on a rabbit trail. And I've, I, I've had people say, that sermon you preached the other day about, and they'll go on and describe the sermon, and, I, and I'm thinking, my, I can't even connect with what you're saying. I don't remember preaching that sermon. You know, the one about, no, I don't remember preaching that. And they, they might get it to the point where I finally recognize which one they're talking about. I have gone back and listened to my sermon. There was nothing in there like that. That's what they heard. That's how easy trigger words can get us off of the main message. What's the main message here? I'm trying to preach about Jesus Christ. But they have went home and saying that they preached on something totally different. Made them mad. They're never going back. My goal is to win people to the Lord. But sometimes they hear things that trigger emotions and that trigger thoughts and they completely obliterate the core message. Now the the Jews didn't have a chance of seeing the Messiah because they hated Gentiles. What is it that keeps people from finding Jesus? What is it that triggers them? That when all I'm trying to do is preach that Jesus Christ has come to save the world from their sins, that they come and they hear something they can't deal with, and they go away and say, that preacher was mad at me. It wasn't what the sermon was about. The crowd got worked up again. The Roman soldiers swooped up Paul and carried him out of there back to the barracks, and intending this time to go ahead with the flogging and the interrogation. Now, the first time that they were ready to flog him and interrogate him, he just said, can I have a word with the people? He escaped at that time by begging the opportunity just to speak to the crowd. And, and, the, and the Romans thought, well, if he can get this thing settled down, this riot settled down, uh, maybe, maybe this will work. So uh, the second time, they, they swept him up. And took him to the barracks. This time they're going to, for sure, they're intent on torturing him and getting to the truth because they haven't learned the truth yet. And just about as they are to flog him, then he gives a second bit of information by himself. I don't understand Paul at all. Why doesn't he just spill the beans and get everything cleared up in one fell swoop? But this time he says, uh, Excuse me. Is it legal to use uh, torture, confessional torture on a Roman citizen? Now, it was not. It was not even, it was not legal to even order it be done. Now, a Roman citizen could be flogged if they were guilty. But you can't use this, this method of torture to extract a testimony from them. You can do that to anybody but a Roman citizen in the Roman Empire. Uh, but you can't do it to a Roman citizen. They, have, they are protected by citizens' rights. So, he, excuse me, is it legal what you're just about ready to do? And they were horrified. Are you a Roman citizen? Well, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. Why didn't you tell us this to begin with? Why are you so stingy with your information? They were horrified. They had ordered the flogging. They were already in hot water. They weren't safe because they didn't flog him. They were in deep trouble because they ordered it. That was illegal, and it could cost them plenty. Their lives, their position, cost them something. They were horrified. Whoa! We came that close to flogging a Roman citizen. Who ordered this? Somebody! Heads are going to roll! They decided at this point, they were going to release him to the Sanhedrin. And they would go and listen to Paul talk to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, which would have been the Jewish council, they were overseeing their own affairs, see. And they will go and they will eavesdrop on Paul's conversation with the Sanhedrin. Let the Sanhedrin try and sort this out. And we'll see if we can get to the bottom of the truth. We can't flog him. We can't torture him. We still want the truth. We'll see what he has to say to them. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. And Paul again pulls out his oratory skills. And he uses the same skills as a speaker to, to manipulate the Sanhedrin that he used to manipulate the crowd and control them. I, I admire Paul. I mean, he, he is so powerful standing before these people and taking command and taking control. But Paul's in physically in bad shape. Remember this. He's just been beaten within an inch of his life. And he's standing before the Sanhedrin. And he begins his defense before the Sanhedrin by stating he's fulfilled his duty to God with a clear conscience. That's it. That was his opening statement. And the high priest said somebody close to him, reach over there and smack him in the mouth right now. And somebody did. Popped him in the mouth. And Paul flew off the handle. You whitewashed hypocrite. (laughs) How dare you to try and judge me by the law and you break the law? And somebody standing next to him, he said, do you dare to speak to the high priest like that? And Paul says, I'm sorry. I didn't know he was the high priest. Now we, we wrestle with that. For several reasons. Number one, we wrestle with it because why didn't Paul know he was the high priest? Because this was a kangaroo court that had quickly been called together. They were not in their usual places. The high priest was maybe not wearing his his proper garb. They were just quickly assembled. And maybe he was not recognizable. Maybe it was because this was a new high priest. Since the last time that Paul knew the Sanhedrin or had any dealings with them. And he did not. This, this guy's name was Ananias too. It wasn't the same Ananias. Don't get him confused. And so he did not recognize the high priest. Did not know the man. He did not have an identification. And he, and he smarted off to him. But there another. We wrestle with this. Is what did Paul do wrong? What did he say that was wrong? What Paul said was absolutely the truth. These blinded, spiritually dead Jewish hypocrites are trying to put him on trial, and his opening statement is I have done absolutely nothing wrong, I am guiltless before God, and you're putting me on trial. And it was true. And they ordered him slapped in the mouth. And Paul spouted off. How dare you, you hypocrite. And then he backs down. The whole thing upsets me. Because in my carnal flesh, I am rooting for Paul when he sasses the high priest. He doesn't have to be under their control anyway, he's no longer a professing Jew. He is following Jesus. He is no longer bound by the law. He is following Jesus. He's no longer just a citizen of Rome. He's a citizen of heaven. He has every authority and every right to say, I don't know who you people think you are. You don't even know who God is. You crucified your own Messiah, and you're going to take it out on me. I'm going, go for it, Paul. Go for it. Give him a piece of your mind. And he backs down. And I'm so disappointed in Paul. Paul, you had him. And then he says, I'm sorry. He apologizes to the man who uh, unlawfully ordered him smitten. And he apologizes. I'm sorry. Now, it's interesting to me, nothing else came of that. They got away with slapping Paul. Paul got away with sassing him. and And the matter's over. They didn't do anything about that. I find that very fascinating. But furthermore, when Paul backed down, we asked the reason why. And the fact is if you just want me to cut to the chase right now, the fact is if Paul had continued along that battle, the high priest, versus Paul. Who's right? Who has the more godly authority? Paul would have have made a train wreck out of God's will for his life. He would have aborted God's plan for his life. The whole issue would have been Paul versus the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they would have won that battle here on earth. They would have ordered him for his disrespect. They would have ordered him thrown into jail, into prison. Who knows what would happen to Paul? But God didn't want Paul arrested by the Sanhedrin. Now, here's the point I'm making. Sometimes you have to be very careful about exerting your rights, your rights can get in the way of what God wants to do in your life. Surrendering your rights keeps your life in the hands of God and Him directing you. But if you're bound to determine you're going to win this battle and you're going to be right, you might abort God's will for your life. So what Paul was doing, he was backing down because this was not what God wanted for Paul's life. It's not a matter of who's right, who's wrong, who's got more authority. Was it right for them to smack you? No, it wasn't. But God wanted Paul to go to Rome, and it wasn't going to happen if this was his battle. You've got to pick your battles. If you want to follow God's will, you can't be constantly fighting your own battles and letting God lead you. It's not going to work. You've got to let God fight your battles. So Paul, in the next thing, after he apologizes, immediately changes his opening statement. Now the opening statement, he thinks that strategy did not work good. I stand here and proclaim my innocence. That didn't work. Just made the high priest angry. He takes a whole nother tack on his next sentence. And this is where the brilliance of Paul's oratory skills comes out. Paul, knowing some of these are Sadducees and Pharisees, because that's what comprised the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Paul was a Pharisee. And the Sadducees, and I've told you this before, many of you remember this, for those of you who don't remember it, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees did not. Right? Proper? Therefore they were what? They were sad, you see. <laughs> they had no hope. I know it's goofy, but it'll help you remember it. So Paul, thinking, hmm, we got Sadducees and Pharisees here, and they're always angrily bickering with one another about the resurrection. Pharisees believe in it, Sadducees don't. And he says, I can make this a point of contention. I can divide the house and deflect them from the issue. So he starts off, knowing that some of them are Sadducees and Pharisees, he called out in the Sanhedrin. He said, my brothers, I am a Pharisee. Now he has half the people for him. And half the people against him. That's better than have them all against him. Or however the numbers were divided. Didn't make it, it was half and half or whatever. Some for him, some against him. I am a Pharisee, and I'm descended from Pharisees. My father was a Pharisee. His father, father, we come from a long line of Pharisees. I'll be a Pharisee till I die, and I'm on trial today because of the issue of the resurrection. Now he has them fighting with each other. They forget about Paul, and now you just bring up the resurrection, and they start bickering one with another right there in the Sanhedrin, and they get into their own little fight and forget about Paul. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. When this, he said this. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the whole assembly was divided. Then it says, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, "Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome." See, that's Paul's. That's God's mission and purpose for Paul. You can't be deflected and aborted by Paul fighting meaningless battles. Some of the battles, you just got to let them go, people. It's not worth fighting. It'll distract you from doing what God wants you to do. I have to ask myself a question. The only reason Paul is being beat up in the marketplace, the only reason he's standing before the Sanhedrin, the only reason these people are mad at him is one reason, because they think he took a Gentile into the inner courts. It's the only reason they're mad at him. And why thus far has Paul not one single time said, I did not take a Gentile. He's never made the case. Don't you think that'd be the easy way to clear this up? I am accused of something I didn't do. How many of you can remember a time in your life when you were accused of doing something you did not do? And it had a pretty big effect on your life. Falsely accused. You don't have to raise your hand. Think about it. Got a good grip on that yet? Falsely accused. Is there anything that is more infuriating than to be falsely accused of something? Total out and out lie spread against you. And you can adamantly say, I did not do that. One person gets falsely accused and loses their job because of it. I didn't do it! They fired me. Somebody gets falsely accused and their marriage breaks up. It's not true. I'm telling you, it's not true. Well, it looks to me like it is. It's not true! You get falsely accused. It has a devastating effect on some people's lives. And Paul never even addressed that issue. You know, when we stand in that place, we've been falsely accused. We don't seem to be able to win the battle convincing somebody. And we're going to pay a big price for it. It's not fair. It's just not fair. But there's, there's reason to understand why we have to find a way to navigate through the false accusations. Jesus was completely crucified on the cross based on false accusations. He was not a criminal. Everything was false accusation. And if it wasn't strong enough, they made stuff up. Yep. Blessed are ye, men shall revile you, and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you. Falsely. You've got to rejoice and be exceeding glad, because you're in good company. I hate false accusations. I have a hard time handling false accusations. I have to deal with the truth. If I'm wrong, I have to deal with it. It's, ugh, blame me. Should've known better. But false accusations—how do you handle that? And you know, a good part of living a successful Christian life has to do with being able to navigate through the things that are not right just not just, just not fair, and still being able to stay faithful and true to God, although you have been blamed and accused. Can you still keep your dedication to God in spite of that? Some people can't. Some people get bitter. God, if you're going to let them treat me like that, they treated Jesus like that. And there are biblical ways of handling those false accusations. Paul didn't address the issue. You don't have to respond. You don't always have to respond. You don't have to defend yourself. We like to defend ourselves. But the fact of the matter is, it probably doesn't do any good. But what does do some good is to make that resolve in your life that no matter what people throw against me, I'm not going to be dissuaded from serving God and trusting Him. And believing everything's going to work out for the best if I keep my trust in God. I can't do anything about the rumors they make up about me. All I can do is don't let it interfere with my resolve to serve God. Now, the reason why Paul chose not to further challenge the Jewish high priest is because he just didn't want to be distracted by troubles of his own making. He wanted to stay on focus for God. Revenge can seem sweet, but it can mess up what God's prepared for you. Spend too much time looking for personal revenge, you're robbing God of time to be able to work out things in your life. I just had an attack this morning, not from you, not from people, and an attack from memory lane. And I remember as a pastor in one of my churches having false accusations brought against me. And I I, I begin to think of particularly one of the men who had been kind of the, the leader of the band that came against me. And and I started feeling real hard toward him this morning. This morning, before I preach. And I started dreaming up these scenarios where I run into him somewhere. (laughs) And when I do, I walk up and I just give him a piece of my mind. You filthy, disgusting piece of humanity. How, How dare you? Shame on you for what you did. Shame on you. And then I remembered that I had already dealt with that years ago when I had said I chose to forgive. And I asked myself, why are you regurgitating this when you've already chosen to forgive? And then I told myself in return, I don't know. You're right. It's not right what he did to me. It's not right what that board did to me. It's not right. It was false. My parting statement to you. they they said we want your resignation I said I will give it in protest I want to go down on record as saying you've done the wrong thing you've done it to an innocent man they said we understand that wasn't what I wanted I wanted them to bow down in deep contrition you know but I chose to forgive and I had to lay that aside it's over, it's done because I have to learn to let God reign in my life Time and again, Paul showed signs of wanting to do what he wanted to do. And and we just go back over just quickly. Uh, Paul wanted to have a confrontation with the high priest. He didn't want to stand there and be slapped. He wanted to defend himself. But he had to be reigned in because God has to reign over his life. Not Paul's spirit reigning over him. We have evidence of, of, of Paul saying, I want to go to Asia. And the Spirit's saying, no, you can't go to Asia yet. It's not God's timing. We have evidence of, of Paul time and again making plans. And God's saying, but this is my plan. And Paul has to back up. Why? Because I want God to reign in my life. And that means you have to quit forcing your own plans and do what you want to do, and what make, makes you feel better. And you have to say, but God, what do you want? You can make your plans, you can dream your dreams, but all your plans and your dreams must ultimately be subordinate to God's plans. So, yeah, go ahead and make your plans. Go ahead and make your dreams, but lay them before God. and say, God, anything that's not right, feel free to cut it out and throw it away because I want what you want for my life. These are my plans. How do they fit into your plans? There are times when God gives you a choice. You're free to make a choice sometimes. Sometimes, some people say, I wonder what church we ought to go to. And God says, you got a whole bunch to choose from. I, I'm not the kind of God that has to make every choice for you. God, should I eat vanilla or chocolate ice cream today? God does I don't care. Choose. God, who do you want to marry? There's seven billion people on the face of the earth. And if you think there's only one person that can make you a fulfilled life, and a, and, a, and a godly person then you're sadly mistaken there's, there's choice. but on the other hand on the other hand there are times whenever God will want to specifically direct you and no matter what choice whether it's the college you're going to go to the career you're going to choose the church you're going to choose the mate you're going to choose the one thing that you do have to do with all of those cases is put it at the feet of God and say God if this doesn't please you shut the door and quit complaining when he does Because you have to learn how to let God reign in your life. Now listen to this advice from James, the brother of Jesus. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know what will happen when you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, everybody say that, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. It's very simple. Just learn to pray if it's the Lord's will. Lord, thy will be done. Make God your guide. He's not too busy to manage your life. You give him that invitation. He'd be glad to do it for you. Learn to let God reign in your life.